إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد تريذن وبيجن فاسلي وذا حديث of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu qal qala rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qul huwa allahu ahad ta'dilu thuluth al-Qur'an in this narration hadith number 87 the narration of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ equates to a third of the Qur'an. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ equals a third of the Qur'an. The meaning of this, firstly, is that Surah Al-Ikhlas clearly has a great virtue. And we know that the Qur'an, its chapters and its ayat, they vary in terms of their virtues. The way to understand that is that there are two perspectives regarding the Qur'an. In the first perspective, all of the Qur'an is virtuous in the same way. What perspective is that? From the perspective that all of it is kalamullah. All of the Qur'an is the speech of Allah. So all of it is virtuous in the same way. Every ayah, every chapter in that regard, as it being the speech of Allah, then all of it is virtuous in the same way. Then there is another perspective within that. Within that, all of it being the speech of Allah, there are certain aspects, certain topics, that are more virtuous than others. So for example, certain parts of the Qur'an, they talk about the names and attributes of Allah. Other parts of the Qur'an, they talk about the stories of the prophets that have gone by. Other parts of the Qur'an, they talk about the ahkam, the rulings, the halal, the haram. Different topics come up in the Qur'an. Those topics, some of them have a greater virtue than others. What types of topics have a greater virtue? The topics, the oneness of Allah, where it is talking about the oneness of Allah, the names and attributes of Allah. These types of areas are more virtuous than the areas talking about the ahkam, the halal, the haram, the rulings of marriage, etc. So in that regard, in the regard, in the aspect, in the perspective of the fields and the areas and the subjects of the Qur'an, 
Then there are certain chapters that are more virtuous. There are certain ayat that are more virtuous. So in that regard, we have, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ اللَّهُ الصَّمَدٌ لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٌ Surah Al-Ikhlas. If you look at the topic of this surah, the whole surah is on one topic only. And that is the topic of the Tawheed of Allah, the oneness of Allah. When you examine the Qur'an as a whole, you could say that the Qur'an as a whole can be split into three overall topic areas. It is possible to say, examining the Qur'an and the topics within the Qur'an, that the Qur'an is overall generally three subject areas. You could say, one of them is the ahkam, the rulings, the fiqh, types of issues where it talks about the thief and when he steals and what to do when it talks about the marriage and the divorce when it talks about these types of fiqh issues what you may call fiqh issues that is one subject matter of the quran it mentions those types of issues throughout the quran the second subject matter generally speaking is stories of the prophets of the past. So you notice in the Qur'an, there are stories of the previous prophets and messengers, stories of Ibrahim alayhi salam, Isa alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, Adam alayhi salam, stories of the nations that went by. The third overall category of the Qur'an is regarding the Tawheed of Allah, the names and attributes of Allah. So in that classification, that broad classification, you have three subject areas of the Qur'an overall. When you look at the chapters and the ayat of the Qur'an, they will be referring to or talking about generally one of those three fields. Either about the names and attributes of Allah, either about some rulings, in the religion, or either about the stories of the prophets of the past. Three overall categories. Surah Al-Ikhlas, which of those three categories does it cover? Because some chapters of the Qur'an, they cover all three categories. Some chapters may be two. Surah Al-Ikhlas covers how many of those three categories? So one of those three categories it covers. Stories of the prophets of the past? No. Rulings, fiqh, ahkam? No. Which category? Tawheed. So this is a chapter of the Qur'an which purely talks about one of the three overall aspects. Qur'an is three overall aspects. This surah is purely about one of those three aspects. Therefore, this surah is equivalent to the subject matter of a third of the Qur'an. This surah is therefore equivalent 
to the subject matter of a third of the Qur'an, Tawheed. That is one explanation the scholars have given regarding the meaning of this narration that قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Surah Al-Ikhlas, it equals a third of the Qur'an. Meaning that it alone as one surah equals that whole third of the subject of the Qur'an. Tawheed. It equals the aspect of Tawheed purely in this one surah. So that is one explanation and there are some others too. But that is one common explanation the scholars have mentioned regarding Surah Al-Ikhlas being equivalent to a third of the Qur'an. Meaning it is equivalent in meaning to a third of the Qur'an. Because its meaning purely is about Tawheed. And Tawheed is one third of the subjects of the Qur'an. Even though we say it is one third of the subjects, that doesn't mean that Tawheed is absent from the other two-thirds of the Qur'an. As Ibn al-Qayyim said, every single ayah of the Qur'an, if you ponder over it, you will realize every single ayah of the Qur'an is associated to and referring to the Tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in this... uh, Hadith, we are being taught this great virtue of Surah Al-Ikhlas. We previously came across a narration in Bulugh Al-Maram <coughs> regarding Surah Al-Ikhlas. Anybody remind us of a narration we came across in Bulugh Al-Maram regarding Surah Al-Ikhlas? The companion who used to recite Surah Al-Ikhlas in every rak'ah. He was an imam. So when he used to lead the loud prayers, Maghrib, Isha, Fajr, etc. In every rak'ah, he would recite some Qur'an, but then he would always finish off with, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ اللَّهُ السَّمَدُ Always. Always Surah Al-Ikhlas. So then the people of the mosque, they said to him, how come? Every single raka'ah, every single raka'ah, Surah Al-Ikhlas, with other parts of the Qur'an, etc. But why Al-Ikhlas all the time at the end as well? He said, that's the way I do it. If you don't like it, you can remove me. Somebody else can lead the prayer. So they went to the Prophet Wasallam and they told him. So then when the Prophet Wasallam uh, sought that man and then spoke to him. He asked him, why do you do it? And the man said, because I love Surah Al-Ikhlas, because of the meanings of Tawheed within it. So the Prophet ﷺ acknowledged and affirmed the position of that Imam, indicating the permissibility of doing that, indicating the validity of what he said, of his love for Surah Al-Ikhlas, due to it containing the meanings of Tawheed. So if we briefly look at the meanings of Tawheed within it then, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Say that he is Allah, the one. 
This is referring to Al-Uluhiyyah. Because the name Allah, it is referencing Al-Uluhiyyah. So this is talking about the fact that Allah, He is the only one to be worshipped alone. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ He is the one to be worshipped alone. He is the one deserving of worship alone. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ The scholars, they mention different explanations. One of them is that الصمد is the one whom the creation are in need of for their needs. That all of our needs, we direct them to Allah. We seek all of our needs from Allah. So As-Samad, mentioned by some of the scholars, one of its meanings is that He is the one who all of the creation seek their needs from. And send their requests to. That is As-Samad. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ اللَّهُ الصَّمَدٌ لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ That neither did he beget nor was he begotten, neither did he give birth nor was he given birth to. He is the first and the last without a beginning, without an end. And he has no partners, he has no father, no son. Neither did he give birth nor was he given birth to. Neither did he beget nor was he begotten. And this is from the absolute perfection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The absolute perfection of Allah. That He is not in need of anyone or anything. Not in need of any partners, any son. And that is a refutation therefore. The scholars they say, Surah Al-Ikhlas is a refutation therefore. Of the Jews, the Christians, and the Mushrikun. All of them in this surah refuted. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. Refutation of those who claim that Isa is the son of Allah. Refutation of those who claim Uzair is the son of Allah. Refutation of those who claim the angels are the daughters of Allah, the Mushrikun. لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يولد. Indicating the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ That he does not have a kuf. He does not have an equal or a partner or a resemblant. There is nothing that is resemblant of Allah. Nothing similar to Allah. No comparison to Allah. And that is as Allah mentioned, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ That there is nothing like unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No comparison, no example. Nobody can ever imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is why with the names and attributes of Allah, we affirm them. But we do not try to imagine them or give descriptions to them. That is beyond the minds of mankind and that is beyond what Allah has made obligatory upon us in our responsibility.
Allah mentioned you have not been given from knowledge except a small amount. We have not been given more than what Allah has taught us in the Quran and the Sunnah regarding His names and attributes. So He does not have any anyone resembling Him, any equal, any partner, any assistant. Nothing is required by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why it mentions in that hadith Qudsi, لَوْ أَنَّ أَوَّلَكُمْ وَآخِرَكُمْ وَإِنْسَكُمْ وَجِنَّكُمْ قَامُوا عَلَى سَعِيدٍ وَاحِدٍ That if all of you from beginning to end, the jinn and the humans, were stood on one plain of land, وَسَأَلَ كُلُّ وَاحِدٍ عَنْ مَسْأَلَتَهِ And every single one then asked Allah for his needs, وَأَعْطَيْتُ كُلَّ وَاحِدٍ مَسْأَلَتَهِ And if Allah was to give every single one what they are asking for, Allah was to answer all of the du'as from beginning to end all of mankind, all of jinn ever existed. Every single one makes a du'a, Allah answers all of them, gives every single one what they want. Then that would not decrease, it would not take away from the kingdom of Allah whatsoever. إِلَّا كَمَا يَنْقُصُ الْمِخْيَطُ إِذَا أُدْخِلَ الْبَحْرِ Except like the needle when it is dipped into the ocean. When you dip a needle into an ocean and that drop falls off the needle, how much water have you taken out of the ocean? Negligible, non-existent. And that is the example given that nothing decreases from the kingdom of Allah. So, لَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not have any partners, any equals, any likes. So this hadith, it highlights to us the great virtue of Surah Al-Ikhlas, of قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَادٍ Then after that, hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, رضي الله عنه قال, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم, لا حسد إلا في اثنتين رجل آتاه الله مالا فسلطه على هلكته في الحق ورجل آتاه الله العلم أو الحكمة فهو يقضي بها ويعلمها متفق عليه In this hadith now of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud رضي الله عنه he says that the Prophet ﷺ said, there is no envy, envy is not allowed, except in two affairs. Envy is not allowed, there is no envy, except with regards to two affairs. A man, the first affair, a man whom Allah gave him wealth, and the man spends that wealth in the path of Allah. And the second, a man whom Allah gave him wisdom and knowledge. And so he judges by it and he teaches the people it. Envy then, it says there is no envy except in these two. No envy, envying is impermissible. And what is envy? The definition of envy is what? Um, 
Envy, as Sheikh Al-Thaymeen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala mentioned, it is to wish that your brother loses the blessing he's got just because you haven't got it. You see that one of the brothers, somebody has got some blessings from Allah, a new car, a new house, a new this, a new that. You see somebody has been given some blessings, you have not got those blessings. But you see somebody else has been blessed with these things. So you wish that they are taken away from him and he loses them, simply because you haven't got them. That is envying him. You envy what he's got because you haven't got it. You envy it and you wish that it's taken away from him. You wish that he loses it because you haven't got it yourself. That is envy. And as a Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentioned, Hafizahullah, envy is an old disease. It is not something new. Envy began with Shaytan himself with Iblis, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam alayhi salam, <coughs> and then he said to the angels, وَإِذْ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا إِبْلِيسِ أَبَا وَاسْتَكْبَرَ وَكَانَ مِنَ الْكَافِرِينَ When Allah said to the angels, prostrate to Adam, so they all prostrated except Iblis, أَبَا وَاسْتَكْبَرَ he refused and he was arrogant and haughty. And he was from the disbelievers. Why did he refuse? From envy. He envied Adam. Envied Adam that Allah created him with his own hands. Envied him that Allah taught him the names of all of the affairs. Envied him that Allah commanded all of them to prostrate to him. Believing that he, Iblis, Believing that he was superior to Adam. Believing he, due to him being made of fire, is superior to Adam who was made of clay. So from his envy he refused to prostrate and that led to his kufr. Similarly after the sons of Adam were born, one of the sons, his deeds were accepted upon his piety. And the other one they were not. So the other one envied his brother until that envy led to the first murder occurring in mankind. Envy led to that murder. And then when you go throughout history and you come to the final messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Jews they knew of the coming of the final messenger. That was mentioned in their books and their revelations and they were expecting the coming of a final messenger. But they were expecting and hoping that he would come from the lineage of of Bani Israel, of Ishaq. But instead he came from the lineage of the Arabs. And so from their envy of that, they refused to accept knowing having knowledge of his coming beforehand even. They refused and they hid that knowledge from their envy that he has not come from our lineage. Envy led to that, to their kufr and their hiding of the truth. So envy is a disease. And here that's why it says, لا حسد 
No envy is permissible or allowed. If you see, as Shaykh al said, if you see something that your brother has got, some blessing he's been given, you have no need whatsoever to be envious. Why do you not just raise your hands to your Lord and make dua for the same thing? Allah's kingdom will not decrease whatsoever if that same blessing is given to you too. So make dua that Allah puts barakah into what your brother has been given and then make dua to Allah that you are given the same blessing too. Why make dua that his is taken away when Allah the one, the mighty, the majestic can answer your dua and give it to you too. So be righteous and make dua for your brother and ask Allah to give you what you require too. That is superior, that is better. Why fall to the whisperings of the shaitan in having that evil intent and feeling to your brothers and those whom Allah has blessed with what he has blessed them with. So here the Prophet says, no envy. But there are two things mentioned where it can exist. Not in the form of wishing that it's taken away from your brother, but in the form of simply wishing that you had it so that you could do what your brother is doing. What are the two examples? A person who's been given wealth and uses that wealth in the path of Allah. You have an envy, meaning that you desire. You had all of that wealth so that you could get all of that reward by spending all of that wealth in the path of Allah, just like your brother is. And that is like the hadith, when the companions, they came to the Prophet ﷺ, and they said to him, Ya Rasulullah, ذَهَبَ أَهْلُ الدُّثُورِ بِالْأُجُورِ Our Messenger of Allah, the people of riches, have taken all of the rewards. يُسَلُّونَ كَمَا نُسَلِّ وَيَسُومُونَ كَمَا نَسُومُ They pray like we pray, they fast like we fast, but then, وَيَتَسَدَّقُونَ بِفُضُولِ أَمْوَالِهِمْ On top of all of that, they give charity with their money. But we don't have any money to give in charity. So we can pray and get that reward. We can fast and get that reward. Just like the rich people do. But then the rich people have this extra worship we can't do. They have money and they use that and spend it in the path of Allah and get the reward for all of that, and we can't do that. So then the Prophet ﷺ told them, what? Since you've studied the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi in this masjid, everybody will know what the Prophet ﷺ said to them. So the Prophet ﷺ told them to do dhikr. Subhanallah, alhamdulillah, do dhikr of Allah, and you'll get reward upon that. Do the dhikr of Allah, and you'll get the reward as well. So they began to do that. Then the rich ones discovered this worship of the dhikr and they began doing that too. So then the poor ones came to the Prophet ﷺ and they told him that. And then he said to them, hmm? That is the virtue of Allah that He gives to whom He wills. But then, the scholars have mentioned, who is superior? A person who is rich and is thankful to Allah 
he's rich and he's thankful to Allah, spends in the path of Allah. الصابر, the one who is poor, but he's patient upon his poverty, who is superior? So one person is rich and he spends in the path of Allah. Spends his money building schools, everything going hajj, umrah. Spends that money in the path of Allah. Another one is poor, has nothing. He has to remain patient upon what he has. Do his worship what he can. Which of them has more reward? Which one is superior? The rich one spending everything in the path of Allah? The poor one being patient? Which one? Shall we stand up poor here, rich there? The rich one? But the poor one doesn't have any money, so what? So who's better? Somebody give us an evidence from the Quran then. Inna akramakum عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ The most noble of you with Allah is the most pious of you. So if the rich one is more pious, he's better. If the poor one is more pious, he's better. So here that is the first category. The second category is رَجُلٌ آتَاهُ اللَّهُ الْحِكْمَةِ فَيَقْضِي بِهَا وَيُعَلِّمُهَا a man whom Allah has given him wisdom, knowledge. So he judges by that and he teaches that. So you see that a person has been given knowledge of the religion. So you have an envy of that in this regard. Meaning you wish that you had all of that knowledge too. So that you could worship Allah and you could teach in the way that this individual does. That you could be upon the worship of Allah and the obedience of Allah with that knowledge. As Allah has blessed this man with that knowledge. So these are two examples given and both of them indicate uh, the virtuous act of the one who uses his blessings in the path of Allah. The one given wealth uses his blessings in the path of Allah, his wealth. And the one given knowledge uses that knowledge, acting upon it, uh, uh, teaching it, judging by it, uses that in the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the correct manner. And so it's mentioned in terms of the the understanding that these are virtuous things that you should strive for in terms of knowledge. And as for the wealth, then the desire to do goodness and worship had you had that wealth also. Then after that, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu. أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كَانَ يَدْعُو فَيَقُولُ اللَّهُمَّ إِنِّي أَسْأَلُكَ الْهُدَى وَالتُّقَى وَالْعَفَافَ وَالْغِنَى رواه مسلم That the Prophet sallallahu used to say That O oh Allah indeed I ask you for guidance and piety وَالْعَفَافَ وَالْغِنَى Self-sufficiency. And that I ask you for self-sufficiency that I don't have to be under the hands of other people and asking etc. 
that you give me that self-sufficiency. This is a dua that the Prophet ﷺ used to make, and it's one of those collective types of dua, that within it there are several meanings, a comprehensive type of dua that the Prophet ﷺ used to make. Asking Allah firstly for Al-Huda, the guidance, and that is Al-Ilmu Nafi' the beneficial knowledge, Al-Huda and At-Tuqa, these two are mentioned here together, Al-Huda wa tuqa the guidance and the Taqwa. In that context together, the guidance means Al-Ilmu Nafi' wa tuqa Al-Amal Salih, that is asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for beneficial knowledge, and then with that, righteous actions. Because this whole religion, Yadur ala, these two things, it revolves around the al-huda wa-tuqa, al-ilmu al-nafi' wal-amal al-salih. These are the two points that the whole religion revolves around the beneficial knowledge and then the righteous actions upon it. فَالْهُدَى هُوَ الْعِلْمُ النَّافِعُ وَالتُّقَى الْعَمَلُ الصَّالِحُ وَتَرْكُ مَا نَهَى اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ عَنْهُ وَبِذَلِكَ يَسْلُحُ الدِّينُ فَإِنَّ الدِّينَ عُلُومْ نَافِعَةٌ وَمَعَارِفْ صَادِقَةٌ فَهِيَ الْهُدَى وَقِيَامٌ بِطَاعَةِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهُوَ التُّقَى So this beneficial knowledge and these righteous actions, this is what a person asks Allah for. And then when it goes on, Al-Afaf wal-Ghina, Al-Afaf, meaning that you're not desiring what's in the hands of the people, you are sufficient and you're content and happy with what Allah has apportioned for you, that you've been given sufficiency in that, and you don't uh, go looking into what the people have and desiring it from them. You have your sufficiency and you have your uh, contentment in your heart, with what Allah has blessed you with. So that is a comprehensive type of dua that the Prophet ﷺ used to make. Then after that, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr radiyallahu anhuma qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, man ahabbah an yuzahzah anil nar, وَيُدْخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ فَلْتَأْتِهِ مَنِيَّتُهُ وَهُوَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَلْيَأْتِ إِلَى النَّاسِ الَّذِي يُحِبُّ أَنْ يُؤْتَى إِلَيْهِ رواه مسلم This hadith now says Whomsoever wishes to be distanced and removed and taken away from the fire and entered into paradise, then let him die upon a state of iman in Allah on the last day. You wish to be removed and distanced from the hellfire and entered into the into the paradise, then let you be from those who die with iman in Allah and the last day. This hadith 
The purpose of it there is to highlight the iman in the day of judgment. Iman in Allah and iman in the day of judgment. Often you see these two put together. Iman in Allah, iman in the day of judgment. Often, even though there are iman in the angels, the books, the prophets, the decree. But often you see iman in Allah because that is the core Iman in Allah, that's the, the highest thing. Then always Iman in the Day of Judgment is often mentioned with it. Why? Why is that often mentioned with it? Iman in Allah, it's clear. That's the head. Iman in Allah. Then there's prophets, books, angels, decree, Day of Judgment. Why is Day of Judgment a lot mentioned with Allah? Iman in Allah and the Day of Judgment. The reckoning, the justice will be on that day, that is a point. That all of those points of iman, the end result of them will be on the day of judgment. You will see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But also many of the mushrikeen, they used to. They used to? But with the day of judgment issue? They used to reject the resurrection. There was much rejection of the resurrection. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts that there, the iman in Allah, creator, provider, sustainer, maliki yawmiddin. And then on top of that, the day of judgment and the resurrection and that it is real. And all of this you will return to us for your accountability. Iman in Allah and iman in the day of judgment. And so this narration, it is emphasizing that point, that the one who wishes to be saved from the hellfire, and wishes to be entered into paradise, then let that person die upon a state of certainty, yaqeen and iman in Allah and the day of judgment. And what does it mean iman in Allah and the day of judgment and the other affairs? Iman and then with it, action and obedience. And that's why it's mentioned from the signs of salvation. In Surah Al-Asr, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُصْرِ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ الْعِلْمُ النَّافِعُ وَالْعَمِلُ الصَّالِحِ Those who have iman and they then do their righteous actions. So this narration is highlighting that point, highlighting the importance of your iman. And iman basically is knowledge. It comes through knowledge. Knowledge and understanding of the religion is the iman increasing. That's why the scholars say the biggest way to increase your iman. People say my iman is feeling weak, I'm feeling a bit down, a bit low. The biggest way to increase your iman is through seeking knowledge. That's what the scholars say. Because the more you read the Quran, the speech of Allah, the more you read all these different hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the more that enters into your heart, the more your iman increases, recognition and understanding of the Qur'an and Sunnah. So they say that is the highest way to increase your iman if you're feeling low. Attend the gatherings of knowledge, read into the religion and learn more. The more you learn, the stronger your iman inshaAllah becomes. The last narration we're going to do today then, حديث أبو هريرة رضي الله عنه قال 
قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله يرضى لكم ثلاثة ويكره لكم ثلاثة Allah loves and is pleased with three things for you and Allah is displeased with three other things Allah is pleased for you to do three things and displeased with three other things what are they fayarda lakum Allah is pleased for you to do firstly an ta'buduhu wa la tushriku bihi shay'a that you worship him alone upon tawheed and do not commit any shirk. That is the first and the basis of it all. وَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and do not commit any shirk with him. وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا أَنْ اعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَاشْتَنِبُوا الطَّاغُوتِ Every nation we sent a messenger to them preaching Worship Allah alone and abandon the false deities. And when the prophets and messengers said to their people, Ya qawmi, Ya qawmi, Allah, ma lakum min ilahin ghayru. O people, worship Allah, you do not have any other deity to worship. In the famous hadith of the Prophet Allah. Do you know what the right of Allah is upon the servants? And the right of the servants upon Allah? Then he gave the answer, the right, حَقُّ عَلَى الْعِبَادِ The right of Allah upon his servants, أَنْ يَعْبُدُوهُ وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا That they worship him upon tawheed and they do not commit any shirk. Worshipping him alone with every aspect of worship and they do not commit any shirk. وَحَقُّ الْعِبَادِ عَلَى اللَّهِ يعني the, the virtue, the, the fadl that Allah has given us, is Allah يُعَذِّبَ مَنْ لَا يُشْرِكَ بِهِ شَيْئًا That Allah will not punish the ones who do not commit shirk. So that is the first, and that is the most basic of the whole religion, the tawheed. The second thing that Allah is pleased with you with, وَأَنْ تَعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا That you all cling on to the rope of Allah, بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ فَصَّرَهُ السَّلَفِ the Salaf, they gave the tafsir of it. They said, Al-Quran, Wal-Sunnah, Wal-Islam, Wal-Iman. And all of these, they are the same meaning. Cling on to the rope of Allah, the Quran. Cling on to the rope of Allah, the Sunnah. Cling on to the rope of Allah, Al-Islam. Cling on to the rope of Allah, Iman. This is all clinging on to the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the second thing Allah is pleased with you to do is to be united together upon the religion of Allah. To be united upon the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and not to split and to differ, but be upon one aqeedah, one methodology, one pathway. This is my straight path, so follow it. And do not follow the other distorted pathways, they will split you away from the path of Allah, the path of Tawheed. And so that is the unity that Allah is pleased with us to be upon, and that is a principle of the religion. As for the people who say, Differing in my ummah is a mercy. Hadith on mawdu'ah. It is a fabricated narration, there is no basis to it. It is not a narration, it is not a hadith. Splitting in my ummah is a mercy. 
That is not a mercy, that is adab. It is punishment that the splitting occurs. And the third thing, not mentioned in this version, but the third thing is what? One, it's not mentioned here. What's the third thing? وَأَن تُنَاصِحُوا مَنْ وَاللَّهُمْ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ That you give advice to those whom Allah has put in authority over you. Hearing and obeying the rulers and advising, but not rebelling and uh, revolting. To be upon the methodology of Ahl Sunnah regarding the rulers. That is the other thing mentioned in the narrations that Allah is pleased with you. The three things that Allah is not pleased with you for. وَيَكْرَهُ لَكُمْ قِيلَ وَقَالَ قِيلَ وَقَالَ Meaning random speech, I heard him saying this and he was saying that. And you know I heard them saying this and spreading stories and tales and I heard this and I heard that. And they were saying this and she said and he said all of this type of speech, this futile speech. And that is not something pleasing to Allah. That a servant spends his time in this wasteful manner. I heard this and I heard that and he was saying this and they were saying that and you know this and you know that and talking about this person, that person, those people, them people. That type of behavior is not suitable for a servant of Allah. Not suitable to engage in that type of useless speech that takes time and time without any basis often, without any proof, without any validity. So that is not the way of a believer. Secondly, وَكَثْرَةُ السُّؤَالِ Excessive Questioning. Not just questioning, because if you have an issue and you want to know, then you question. Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. We've been told to ask. But the issue is excessive questioning. Excessive questioning, not just questioning. Just questioning is praiseworthy. Just like Aisha radiallahu anha said, about the women of the Ansar. She said, Ni'mah Nisa al-Ansar. How good are the women of the Ansar? Lam yakun yamna'hunna haya'hunna min an yas'alna an umuri dinihinna. Their shyness, shyness of a woman, their shyness did not used to stop them from asking about the affairs of their religion. Referring to the periods and the blood and the menstruation, etc. Shyness on the affairs, but they used to ask, to find out about the religion of Allah and what the rulings are upon them regarding those affairs and ibadah. So she said, Aisha said, how good those women are. Their shyness, which is praiseworthy, did not stop them from finding out about their religion. So just asking is good. But excessive questioning in various ways. It could be in religious affairs. Where a person delves in so deep and they ask questions so involved, situations that are never gonna happen, or situations that are obvious to resolve, asking what about this, what about this, what about that, you answer, but what about this, and you answer, but then what about that, and for an hour, but what about this, and but what about that. Excessive questioning is not suitable. And uh, there are uh, narrations mentioned about how excessive questioning led to the downfall of those who came before us. And it can also refer to, in some respects, in some narrations, begging, asking the other people for what is in their hands for you, uh, uh, lowering yourself to other people in that way, that is not suitable either. And the third thing, وَإِضَاعَةَ الْمَالِ 
Wasting wealth. Wasting your money is the third thing that Allah does not, is not pleased with you for. Wasting your wealth and wasting your money. Using it on useless affairs. Al-Israf. Excessively spending on things that you do not require. Excessively spending on things that have no need. Then this type of wastage in wealth is not something that Allah is pleased with you for. Because on the day of judgment you will be asked two things about your wealth. What are the two things you will be asked regarding your wealth? How you spent it is one, what's the other? How did you get it? Firstly, where did you get your money from? Was it a halal income? And secondly, where did you spend it? Was it halal where you spent it? Sometimes a person may have halal income, but spends it in haram. Maybe he has haram income and then tries spending it in halal, which will not be accepted in that way. Haram income and then you try spending in charity. In Allah Allah only accepts the good. So here, where you got your wealth and where you spent it. Did you get it halal and did you spend it halal or not? So this is an affair that you'll be questioned about on the day of judgment regarding your wealth and how you spent it. And it is certainly a blessing of Allah upon you what you have been given from your wealth. So uh, the third point mentioned here is that Allah is not pleased with you to waste your money. Using it appropriately, using it upon the rights that are upon you, children, family, clothes, housing, food, of course, that is the rights upon you. But it's the wasting it wastefully in things that are not of requirement or above requirement, uh, then that is what is disliked. That is where we'll conclude and that is where we are going to summarize and round off this particular book of hadith. We've done several narrations now, 30, 40, 50 hadith. We're going to round off this particular book on those narrations there. And inshallah ta'ala, in my sessions, we'll start some other lectures in the future, some other topics. But that is inshallah ta'ala where we'll round off tonight and where we'll round off this particular book, Bahjatu Qulub al Adrar, for the time being. Any questions or anything to add before we conclude? Go on. What's the ruling for people who travel to Haram for Umrah or Hajj uh, without the mahram? Impermissible. A woman who goes to Hajj or Umrah without a mahram is impermissible. It is not obligatory upon her to go without a mahram. She could be the richest woman in the world. But if she hasn't got a mahram, there is no obligation upon her to go. These groups that you find now, they're all women groups. You get them in certain places and there are elderly women maybe in their 40s and 50s and 60s and they are in charge of this group. And there are lots of other women and they give you the fatwa that lots of women amongst themselves act as a mahram amongst themselves. It is false, the scholar said. That is not a mahram acting amongst yourselves. So a woman who does not have a mahram, then it is not an obligation upon her to go until a mahram becomes available. So it is not permissible for women to go without a mahram. Then this is like we said, the generalized areas. If you break it down, Ibn Qayyim mentioned five areas of the Quran. One of them being the, uh, the news about the Day of Judgment and the Paradise and the Hell. 
But this is just overall categories. Everything else gets linked in within it when you start looking into more detail, no doubt. The, the travel distance, which is differed over, of course. Traveling distance, when can you combine, when can you shorten? Some scholars, they say, when you leave the boundaries of your city. As soon as you come out of the boundaries of your city, you are now a traveler, according to some. Others, they say, it is uh, uh, 50, 79, 80 kilometers. 80 kilometers, 49 miles, 49, 50 miles. Some say, if you go beyond that, you're considered a traveler. Others, they say, it is upon the tradition of the people. Traditionally, what the people in their norms view as travel, then it's travel. So if the people of Bradford, they go to Shipley, and that is a a huge journey. You have to pack your lunch, and you have to check the oil and the tire pressure, and put the petrol in, make sure you don't run out of petrol on the road down there. You got to do all of that, and that's how the people of Bradford behave, then you can combine in Shipley. But if they don't, then it becomes known that in the norms of the people, Shipley isn't a journey. So some scholars, they say that's how you work it, on the norms of the people. In Bradford now, if you're going to go down to Birmingham, in the norms of pretty much everybody, okay, that's far. So now in the norms of the people, that is a journey. So you have these different opinions. So if you're going to the in-laws, and depending on where the opinion lies, once the opinion is applicable to you, then you can combine Even she can combine it is not her home anymore. Not particularly like that as a visitation if her home is elsewhere now. Some scholars they mention, they do mention about the marital home, but not particularly the the parents or the relatives as such. Marital home meaning a person has two wives, one in Bradford, one in London. So when you travel all the way down to London, stuck in traffic, seven hours, everything, you get there, you're still going to pray full. Because that's your marital home. But in-laws and uh, fathers and mothers, the people are now residing elsewhere, it's no longer their home, then generally the ruling of traveling still applies. But but then you have the issue of the days. If a person is going to stay in a location for more than four days, which is the opinion of some of the scholars like Sheikh Al-Fawzan, If you're going to stay there for more than four days, then you don't combine. So if the wife is going to go to the in-laws, don't combine at all. She's going to go, you're going to drop her off there for a week. Then according to Sheikh Fawzan, she doesn't combine at all. From the minute she lands, it's no combining, no nothing, you're praying full. You included everybody. Four days or more is the opinion of some scholars like Sheikh Fawzan. There are evidences, if you look into the seerah and some examples of when the companions, they traveled, it's very much differed over. Some of them say eight days, 18 days, there's various opinions. But there are examples of a four-day mission that was taken on, and then the combining wasn't done. Uh, There are examples in the conquering, when the conquering of Makkah occurred, and other examples like that in fiqh. But it's it's very much differed over. It cannot be one definitive opinion, but all I'm saying is, Sheikh Al-Fawzan has that opinion about the four days. A third in reward for reciting in, in the method that we explained. But you cannot say 
that a person who reads Qul huwa Allahu ahad Allahu samad lam yalid wa lam yulad wa lam yakul lahu kufuwan ahad that is the same as somebody who stays here all night and finishes 10 juz you can't say that's equal that isn't equal like that because obviously various other narrations about the rewards and letters etc and the numbers you can't say a scholar say that the reading like that is equal somebody who sits there and reads a third of the quran 10 juz sits there for 5 hours reading 10 juz you sit there for 5 seconds reading al ikhlas have you got the are you equal in that regard of reading they say no not like that but there are various other explanations like the meaning and other things like that so we'll round off that prayer time is coming in inshallah ta'ala we'll carry on from the next session with the new topic uh, whatever that will be it will be advertised